This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. We step back into our sermon series that's leading us up to Easter. It's called The Resurrection. We've been following Jesus and his disciples through the events that are leading them to the cross and learning from those experiences as they take place. Today, uh, we're following up after Jesus was met by Judas at that betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, the contingent of guards who came and bound Jesus and led him away. And we move into the series of of intense questioning, the, the trials that took place. And we recognize through all of these events, again, an opportunity to see the different perspectives of each of the gospel writers, each looking in on those events as they took place, each recording those events in a different way. And, and, and this series of events in particular, we see how each one chose to record different aspects of these events as they took place. If we read through one gospel account, we get a brief uh, summary of this portion of, of the story. Uh, as we read them all together, we see how they, how they fit together with some events aligning in the, those accounts, some of them taking place one after the other, and we get to piece together this full story. That's the goal of this morning, to read through this story, piecing the events together in order so we can gain a, a, a full understanding of all that took place. And so we'll, we'll begin reading in John chapter 18, uh, verse 19. If you have a Bible and you want to open with me, please do so. The words will be on the screen. If you have a phone or tablet and you want to use the YouVersion app, you can search under events at Parkview Fenley and find scripture and sermon notes in the YouVersion app as well. This is uh, after Jesus was, was taken captive and led to presence of the chief priest named Annas for questioning. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what it is. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now there, there are some details that we're going to have to organize to, to make sense of as we move through the story. The first detail that... that will create some difficulty is the idea that they, Jesus went to Annas, the high priest, to be questioned, and then he was sent to Caiaphas, the high priest. There are two high priests. There should only be one high priest. According to uh, the Jewish law, a high priest was supposed to have office for the tenure of his life. Once he took that position, he would remain the high priest until he could no longer fulfill that position. And then a new high priest would be placed in that position of authority. However, we do need to remember that the, the people of Israel are operating under the rule of the empire of Rome. And while they've been given freedom to operate in, in many ways with the convening of their own court, the Sanhedrin, with the ruling uh, to determine outcomes for their own people up to a certain point, there is influence from the Romans. And they have controlled certain aspects of the way the people of Israel 
conduct their business. One of those points of influence is with the person who rules over the Sanhedrin, the high priest. And the tenure of the high priest has been interrupted by the Roman officials, in particular because of the way that high priest either worked really well with the Roman officials or had conflict with those Roman officials. Annas, as the high priest, had a short term. And after him, there was a a succession of high priests, many of them from his own family. Caiaphas happens to be Annas' son-in-law. And now, at the time of the crucifixion, is the high priest in charge of the Sanhedrin because Annas has been removed from his post by the Romans. Now, many of the people of Israel still look to Annas as the rightful high priest, as the one who should still be operating in that position. And so when it comes time to seek advice, when it comes time to make render judgment, to, to make rulings, they still want to know his position and still respect him and still look to him to fulfill those roles, even though officially Caiaphas is the, is the one who will have to render verdicts. And so when Jesus was taken captive, they first took him to Annas to have this conversation for Annas to question Jesus to determine his opinion of what should take place. And we find through this interaction, as Annas is is questioning Jesus, that even in the most difficult of circumstances, Jesus highlights what is right and true. Now, the way that Annas questioned Jesus raises some concerns in regard to Jewish law. Now, you and I don't know the details of Jewish law. did some research and looked up some things, and and in a few minutes we're going to look at some of the, the difficulties that took place through this whole process in violation of uh, those requirements. But, but first and foremost, we need to know that it was against Jewish law for a, a prisoner, someone who was on trial, to testify against themselves. They could not use anything that a prisoner said against them. They had to use the testimony of witnesses as the evidence to render a verdict, to render a conviction. And so when Jesus was taken before Annas and he began questioning him trying to determine his innocence or guilt, trying to gain information from Jesus that could be used in the process, Jesus very clearly pointed out to this official, to this person with respect and influence, through a question that what he was doing wasn't right. Why question me? I've been doing everything out in the open. There are people. I, I was teaching right at the, in the temple courts. There are many people who heard me, people that you could talk to and ask for their witness testimony to gain an understanding. Surely they know what I said. Now, Jesus was highlighting what is right and true, letting Annas know that Jesus knew the right way that this proceeding was supposed to happen and it wasn't happening the right way. Now, Annas, as a, as a high-ranking official in Jewish court, wasn't used to having people tell him that he was wrong. He's the kind of man that's used to giving orders and watching those orders be followed. It was a difficult thing for him to have Jesus correct him, and his officer took it upon himself to reprimand Jesus with a slap to the face, questioning the disrespect that Jesus showed in their eyes to the high priest. Now notice this is the same kind of approach that Jesus took with the soldiers who came to arrest him in Gethsemane, saying, I've, I've been teaching in the temple courts at any time you could have taken me captive. Why are, why are you coming here to this quiet place, interrupting me and the disciples? When Annas questioned Jesus, he said, why are you questioning me? There's so many other people. I was teaching right in the temple courts. Very similar response. Jesus reminding them what was right 
and appropriate and true. Now, after this series of questions, Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, and where John records the interaction between Jesus and Annas, Matthew records the interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas. And we turn to Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57, to hear the next event in this series. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Jesus encountered significant difficulty. Standing there before the Sanhedrin. And what we recognize in the proceedings that happen is that these officials of the Israelites were accusing Jesus, but they weren't even following their own rules in doing so. And there are several rules that were broken that I want to summarize for you so that we're all aware of what's taking place. First, before the trial even began, the, the religious leaders had gathered together plotting to take Jesus' life. And this trial was not a trial meant to determine whether or not he was guilty. This trial was meant to gather enough evidence so that they could kill Jesus. The second, they sought out false witnesses. They sought out people who would say things that weren't true about Jesus so that they could gather that kind of evidence. Third, they didn't have anyone to defend Jesus or represent him. Fourth, the trial, this questioning before the assembled Sanhedrin took place at night and during the festival of the Passover. Those two things were forbidden. Any trial should have taken place during the daylight hours and never during a religious festival. Fifth, the high priest put Jesus under oath and then used what he said as the reason to condemn him for blasphemy, which should not have taken place. It should have used two, at least two, corroborating witnesses as evidence against him. Six, any time a trial took place and the outcome was death, those trials were required to be deliberated over the course of two full days. Never one day, never overnight, 
The council of the Sanhedrin doesn't seem to be interest in acting, interested in acting objectively. They're not, they're not concerned with following the rules to bring about the right procedure. They aren't even worried about maintaining the appearance that, that they are acting appropriately. They're, they're seeking false evidence. They're calling on people, anyone they can find, to condemn Jesus. And when they finally find two people who remember the same thing that Jesus said, that sounds incriminating, even in Mark's gospel, the rest of the details of their stories don't line up. They say this man claimed to be able to tear down the temple and then rebuild it again in three days. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I, when I hear things like that, I'm curious about, about what they're talking about. We have the benefit of being able to turn back the pages of, of Scripture and find the event in which Jesus said the words that they're referring to. We look in the book of John, chapter 2, and we find Jesus Verse 19, answering them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is what what they're referring to, the people who heard him say these words, using their own judgment to determine what he meant by what he said. But they couldn't agree on the details and so... Caiaphas demanded Jesus answer him, even though Jesus had made no response to the accusations that were being brought against him. Through all of these proceedings, Jesus demonstrates to us how to do what is right, even when we've been wrong. That's an important part of the unfolding of this story. Not only does it represent Jesus obeying God's will that leads to the cross. It's also an incredible example to us of how to live our lives in the face of difficulty, how to stand in the face of adversity, how to uphold our character when we've been wronged, how to stand in the face of false accusations, And what we see first is that Jesus was focused on his purpose. Being being accused of blasphemy, being accused of wrong. He knew that he was not there in that courtroom of the Sanhedrin to defend himself. He wasn't there to prove his innocence and therefore not suffer the penalty. Jesus had been brought to this place because he intended to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself on the cross. His defense was irrelevant because he understood his purpose according to God's will, to suffer and die and lay down his life and let his blood be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as he was focused on his purpose, he felt no need to react to accusations. He felt no need to respond and defend himself, even though his name was being dragged through the mud. From his example, we see that when we encounter opposition... We find other people who are saying things about us that aren't true. When we feel hurt, feel the pain of having been wronged, injustice. We feel the need to defend ourselves, to react to what has been said, to what's been done to us. When we feel like we should retaliate and strike back to those who have wronged us, we have an example in Jesus that demonstrates to us how to do what is right. We do that by focusing on our purpose in Him. 
of remembering that in Him we have received love and grace. In Him we have received an example of how to care for people and, and love them even when it hurts. And because of that example, we can focus on the significance of the purpose that we were made for, not to, to respond to, retaliate against other people, but to prove our character by committing ourselves to what is right, over and above everything else, by living according to the example that we're called to live, to care for others and love them. Now that raises a lot of questions. Because that violates my, my instincts. That violates my, my sense of responsibility to defend my, my name, to defend my reputation. So I have a couple questions to ask about, about how to follow that example, to, to stand in the face of, of hurt, to stand in the face of, of accusations and wrong. How do, we, how do we even begin to do that? First question I have is this. Does another person's offense give me the right to retaliate and punish them, even if that means doing things that I know I shouldn't. As we read through the, the story as it unfolds, we see the, not only did Jesus provide us a positive example, we see how the Sanhedrin provides us with a, a negative example. That's exactly what they did to pursue the death of Jesus. They felt wronged by the way he was drawing the Jewish people away from them to believe in him, and their retaliation was to take his life, and they broke all of their own rules to do it. But that's not what Jesus did in response. He stood in the face of their accusations. He stood in the face of their questions. And he upheld what is right and true. When we've been wronged, it's natural to be angry and upset. It's natural to want to strike back. It's natural to want to even the playing field. Sometimes our hurt drives us to, to pursue that. But when we're driven by anger instead of love, when we choose to hurt people in the way that they've hurt us, we're not living according to the loving example of Christ. He shows us that love and truth in response to pain will always bring about the best result. But what if I'm being wrongly accused? This is my second question. What if I'm being wrongly accused? Does that give me the right to get angry and say horrible things about another person? Knowing that their accusations make me look bad. Should I tear them down so no one will believe them? Well, when an answer was demanded of Jesus, notice how he simply stated the facts. That you, you've said these things about me. Even, even when an accusation was made about him. He chose not to answer. And when we face these kinds of false accusations, when we face these kinds of criticisms, and what we find is that we are still called to respond with grace, dignity, consideration for other people. We're called to maintain our character in light of the circumstances that we're facing. And then when we do that, we not only reveal the measure of our character, 
but we'll also discover the measure of the other person's character. When Jesus stood with dignity and refused to answer them, they responded and revealed their character. The way that they went about prosecuting him, the deviation from the law, the kinds of witnesses that they were listening to, the accusations that were made, their questioning of Jesus and taking his word to punish him, it all reveals their desperation to take his life. Notice the lengths that Caiaphas went to as he was trying to expose Jesus. I charge you to answer. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he waited for Jesus to respond. And when he did, he tore his robes. Blasphemy. Can you imagine how expensive that would be? Every time you got upset, you just ripped your shirt. I'm glad that's a practice that we don't still do today. We see this throughout Jewish history. When they, when they were grieving, they would tear their clothes. When they heard bad news, terrible news, when, when there was an offense against God, they expressed their emotion physically. I can imagine buying new clothes all the time. It's good that we don't still do it. I think everybody got the message that this is not an acceptable practice, except maybe Hulk Hogan. You remember Hulkamania? He'd come out in the wrestling ring, just rip his shirt off, get ready to wrestle. How many, how many shirts do you think he went through in the course of his career? I, I happen to believe that he actually cut his shirts before he went out to make sure that when he ripped that they actually came off. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be to come out in the wrestling ring trying to prove your masculinity just to stretch a shirt and then have it stay on? This is just horrible, humiliating. Caiaphas was bound by certain rules. He wasn't supposed to tear his clothes when he was upset. Now, this is if he's following the rules. If, if he's wearing the robes of office, but currently he's meeting with the Sanhedrin at his house. He's not even at the right place at the right time. So I don't know if this is even true. But the, the law for him was that he was not allowed to tear his official garments that represented his office because he was upset or sad. He could only tear those clothes if there was an offense against God. So his tearing of the clothes is a very significant thing as the high priest. Revealing the depth of, the, the, the sin- severity of what's taking place. Now there is some value to being able to demonstrate that kind of emotion. Can you imagine the value? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you say something and you go, ooh, you look upset. Did I upset you with that? I can't tell if you're upset or not. You might, it, how much easier it would be if you could, you know, after saying something, then you would know for sure. I need to, I need to make an apology. I'm sorry that that, that was a clothes-tearing offense. So let me just back up a little bit. Or maybe in, in conversation between a husband and wife, you know, when you're, you're discussing something and that discussion is turning into maybe a little bit of an argument. Nope. You stop right there. You're going to have to buy me a shirt if you keep talking. It would, it would really resolve things quickly, I think, because we all want to, you know, save money and be responsible and those kinds of things. But, but this, is where, this is where Caiaphas was driven to, a display of his, his, the offense and his disgust. Oh, there's blasphemy. And he called on a, a verdict to be rendered. You've heard what he said. What do you think? Jesus deserves to die. 
and they mocked him and beat him. And the next piece of information we have comes from Matthew 27. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and then skip down to verse 11. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now that's a brief summary of events that took place. But notice that while Jesus was willing to answer the question that Pilate asked, he made no attempt to defend himself against the accusations of the, of the chief priests that had followed him to Pilate. They had brought Jesus in and started telling Pilate all the things that they thought would bring about the death penalty. And Jesus refused to answer. He didn't dignify those accusations with a response. Can you imagine being in a courtroom, a modern courtroom, and the defendant's there, and the accusations are being read out, and the penalty for what he has done his death, and instead of bringing a defense, instead of calling his lawyer, he simply stands. You imagine seeing that take place? What would, what would you think about someone who's being accused of, of crimes that will result in their own death and they refuse to even make a response? I would, I would assume some things personally. I might assume that because they're unwilling to respond that they're already guilty. Well, if you don't have anything to say, it's because you know what you've done. Maybe I would, I would, I would think if, if there's even a possibility that these charges are wrong, why won't you say something? Defend yourself. It would be an awful thing to watch take place. hoping desperately that the defendant would, would say something in their own defense. Jesus was in that place, standing before Pilate, hearing the accusations called out against him, and he stood. He remained silent and left those accusations unanswered. And because of that, he made a significant impact on Pilate. Pilate was amazed, standing in the presence of Jesus, in awe of this man who would stand and let these accusations ring out without even a response. Now, we know why Jesus didn't need to respond and didn't bother to respond. But Pilate was left in awe. Jesus made a significant impact on him in the same way that he made a significant impact with every person that he came into contact with. But Pilate didn't Stop there. As we continue reading in the book of Luke, we find more detail. Beginning in chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if 
The man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see Jesus perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. But before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him and in your presence and have found no basis for your charge against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. That's the impact that Jesus made on Pilate. That's the character and the dignity that he maintained through these proceedings. The religious leaders brought about charges. Pilate questioned him. Herod questioned him. And ultimately... What all of this questioning came to was the identity of Jesus. That's what they're trying to nail down, the identity of Jesus. And Pilate voiced this question, are you the king of the Jews? That was the bottom line for him. All the things that he was being accused of, if he was trying to set himself up as the ruler of the Israelites within the Roman Empire, then that maybe Pilate could punish him for. That would give him cause. And they continued to pursue this idea of who Jesus truly was. When Pilate asked that question, Jesus gave a brief response here in this account. But in the book of John, we hear more from Jesus, chapter 18, verse 34. When Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then we hear Pilate's famous words, what is truth? As he handed Jesus back, saying there's no fault that I find in him. Standing in the presence of Jesus, Pilate was impacted. Such a way that caused him to seek an answer to this question. Are you the king of the Jews? The reality is that Jesus presented so much more than that. He wasn't trying to elevate the people of Israel over Rome, overthrow them. Jesus came to bring truth to the world. He came to bring life to the world. He came to represent the purpose that God had laid before him, to bring about salvation for all people. He was no threat to Rome. He was so much more than that. And because of who he was, he was able to stand confidently in the truth and make an impact on Pilate that helped him to recognize the truth about Jesus and make a decision about that. 
Make a decision. Pilate had to decide whether he believed Jesus was guilty or not. Whether or not Jesus deserved to die for the crimes he was being accused of. That's a pretty significant decision to make. And that's why he asked that question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, he will make an impact on our lives. Like Pilate, in awe of this man, we, we come into the presence of Jesus and we recognize that he is the way and the truth and the life. And his presence makes a significant impact on us when we understand the truth about who he is. And we're drawn to ask a similar question. But we don't ask Jesus, are you the king? The question we have to ask is of ourselves. And we ask, am I willing? Am I willing to accept the fact that Jesus is king? Am I willing to surrender to him and his will? Am I willing to honor him as my Lord? Well, sometimes we stand in the presence of Jesus and we're so in awe of who he is, so instantly aware of the truth of his identity that we have no other response than to say, yes, you are not only Savior, Messiah, and Lord, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to accept your rule and your reign as king, and I want to submit to your will. But there are other times that we come into the presence of Jesus and we're confronted by the truth, and it's truth that we don't don't really want to hear because it, it draws us away from the things that we're already committed to, the, the things we're already chasing after, the things that we desire. And sometimes we stand in the presence of the Lord and we, we're hesitant to answer that question because we just aren't ready. Sometimes when we stand in the presence of the Lord, we, we run from that question and we refuse to accept him as our King and our Lord. but not because we haven't been impacted by him. Not because we haven't been awed by his presence. But no matter what we choose, we have to make a choice whether we'll accept him or not. 